You miss a lot of opportunities by making mistakes, but that's part of it. Knowing that you're not shut out forever and that there's a goal you can still reach, you build on failure. You use it as a stepping stone. Close the door on the past. You don't try to forget the mistakes, but you don't dwell on it. You don't let it have any of your energy or any of your time or any of your space. Johnny Cash. Welcome to Becoming Human, episode 53, and today we are going to talk about fads, which is really just a way to bring up some concerns with progress. The focus, as of late, has been on tradition, trying to see some of the less discussed benefits and some of the dangers, but now I want to turn our attention to progress, and I want to explore this through the lens of time, specifically the sociological perspective that there are two overall views of time one of which should make us a bit leery of anything that is new and exciting like a fad. So here we go. Fads, Fabian, memory, and two views of time that reveal the dangers of progress. Let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. Back in episode four, we were talking about change and that there are good motivations for change, healthy, intrinsic, noble, constructive reasons. And there are some motivations for change that are not likely to produce much goodness. Here's the basic premise. You have reactive romanticism, which is disguising problems by using change to cover up the real issue. Reactive nostalgia which is disguising problems by avoiding change and keeping things familiar. Proactive nurturance, which is maturing components of your life or the world, part of the natural process of change. Or you have proactive alteration, which is where you confront an aspect of your life or the world and you try to make things different. What we've been saying is that change is going to happen. You can't avoid it. But it's worth pointing out that how we interact with change can be problematic. It's not just change, there's lots of options here. One of the dangers of tradition is that we try to avoid any continuation at all. That's maps and museums and all of that. That's reactive nostalgia. But there's also the chance that our bend toward progress and change and creativity might be unsustainable at best or detrimental at worst. This could be because the new growth is not properly rooted. We've already explored that. But it could be because the new thing has ulterior motives or what we call extrinsic motivation. The most explicit reality here is doing something new for the sake of newness itself. That, I think, comes up quite a bit in our culture, where it doesn't matter what it is. We just want change or newness for the sake of the experience or because maybe it achieves some other agenda, which means it probably won't be rooted. It might even be a rebellion to roots and the past and tradition and what is known. But the emphasis here is that change done in that way is not done for any constructive means. It's not done intrinsically for the sake of the alteration itself. This is reactive romanticism. 
we're reacting to a present circumstance by romanticizing the feeling of newness. There's a whole other aspect to this as well in, in the unconstructive outcomes we end up with. I'll, I'll save this for a future episode, but the idea of our brains literally craving certainty amidst a complicated world leads to us promoting solutions that aren't really developed. We construct answers in our heads to problems that we don't completely understand because, well, we absolutely desire for the world to be simple. Even if it means ignoring our mental blind spots and pretending that our simple solutions are good enough even when they're not, this is when we're really confident, even if we haven't thought deeply about the thing we're talking about. And this is the byproduct of reactive romanticism. And, and it's a very dangerous tendency by people trying to make decisions about changes. We jump to whatever sounds best within our limited information because we care more about the feeling of security than the outcome. But back to reactive romanticism. I want to focus on the process that we can choose here, not necessarily just one version of an outcome. That, that's more about our mental state of being, not our sociocultural behavior. Now, this whole process of having ulterior motives for change that aren't necessarily constructive is actually quite ordinary and doesn't have to be viewed just through, you know, the sociocultural lens. Shopping is a great example. And, and honestly, the, the world of marketing is built on playing to this desire humans tend to have. You don't need a new pair of shoes or a new outfit. You aren't going to go out and get a new household item or product for the sake of developing some aspect of your life or altering your circumstances in a meaningful, necessary way, the change isn't in response to a necessitated circumstance. The new change is a means to a different end. And this is usually because the change comes with a certain hope that drives the purchase. That, in essence, is the danger of progress. The elusive hope of the future is attractive because it contains the idea of possibility. Again, this is very common, but hopefully you can see how it might relate to larger cultural experience. If this person becomes president, it will fix all the issues. If we institute this law or bill or plan or mission statement or organizational change, then we'll finally be good and have it figured out. And again, usually the outcome, the, the this, is an overly simplified premature conclusion or solution that we've myopically arrived at for the sake of certainty, as opposed to the correct or best outcome. We want answers, not necessarily the best answers, just something to satisfy our sense of finitude. But I think this process is the same premise behind impulsive purchasing or fads or sort of idealistic changes as a whole. There is something wrong or off, or some kind of conflict or drudgery, or just a mundane experience that feels stuck. Behind that, there are very real tactile issues that probably deserve to be explored. But those can be tricky. Those might require delving into circumstances we haven't considered or can't quite notice or that we explicitly want to avoid. But the esoteric hope of the future could change that. And that's the thing about the future. It has no data. It can't be disproven yet. So, theoretically, it could solve the problem. 
So we buy the shoes or rearrange the furniture or take on a new role or class or process or diet or lifestyle because the unknown might be better than the known. Maybe. We don't know. How many organizations put an inordinate amount of emphasis on ideas and just by proposing the ideas and drawing up the plan and making the announcement, everyone feels better now. It is an answer that sounds good in our heads and it solves the problem of uncertainty, even if it doesn't promote constructive change. And the problem here is that one, these ideas aren't based on intrinsic motivation that necessitates the change in response to real context. And two, they don't have any substance to them because the idea or the hope for outcome exists only in the unrealized abstract future. Again, not in practical response to the present and very likely not in utilizing the history and tradition of the past. And you can see the cycle, right? You make this change, you get this new thing, you propose this new idea, then you feel better about the present reality. Then, when the hope for outcome remains elusive, do it all over again. All of this to say, there is some truth in the cliche, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. But it's not just because we prefer what we don't have. I think that's interesting as well. The desire for greener grass is often because we aren't paying attention to the situation that causes grass to not to look lusciously green in the first place. If you travel to new grass because of the hope of the future and the romantic possibility of what is unknown, you're likely to just continue to create the same situation in whatever grass you go to. The proper change in progress would be to know the history of the grass, pay attention to the present circumstances of the grass, and then deal with the foundational causes that have made the grass look the way it does. Make the current grass better with the map that you have. Now, what does this have to do with fads? Well, fads for me epitomize this reactive romanticization the unrooted chasing of progress for the sake of living in the future, possibility of the unknown, satiating desire, and having something new for the sake of newness. Or at least playing to those desires with well-marketed products that are meant to serve reactive romanticism rather than offer anything substantial. And fads are called fads because they wither quite quickly. They fade to oblivion and are replaced with the next iteration of the cycle Case in point, the pet rock. I, as a 1989 baby, evaded the iteration of the pet rock. However, the onslaught of the pet rock wasn't that long ago. Yet, I do not currently know anyone who still possesses the exuberant hobby. I'm not saying pet rock owners are non-existent. I'm just saying that by my experience, it doesn't carry the acclaim and captivation that it once did. And I think this might be because pet rocks weren't meant to do that. They were meant to sell. And they did. But whether we are talking about pet rocks or fashion trends or pop culture or impulsive purchases or, you know, the next new fill in the blank, there are certain forms of progress that meet the criteria of the fad, of changing for the sake of change, being extrinsically motivated 
which profit being a regularly occurring motivation, but this also includes eluding conflict or escaping something or gaining influence or power or prestige, all of that, but they are extrinsically motivated as opposed to being rooted. There's no substance that the progress seeks to continue for a meaningful, constructive outcome. Fads are reaching for the future with no sense of the past and no honesty of the present. Let's be real. Pet rocks are an easy target here, but what we see with the pet rock, I think, translates to a lot of the impulses we have when it comes to progress in general, especially when it explicitly rebels against tradition. The desire for the new just because it isn't old. We need to be careful with this. And the biggest warning sign is that these esoteric unknowns will have nothing intentional to sustain them over time. In the case of the pet rock, that was actually part of the point. Longevity just isn't a concern. But to return to the map metaphor from, from the past couple episodes, it is the difference between studying the current map to see potential unexplored territory and expanding the map versus just taking off because somewhere else feels better than where we are. Can you still stumble upon something brilliant and useful or constructive? Sure. Was that the point? Probably not. And that's the difference. We chase these things that bring about transplants of experience that lack the deep-seated intentionality of existential value in the human narrative that continue the oracles of time. They exist in contrast for the present moment in the unproven hope of the future for momentary validation. And as soon as those circumstances of the moment are complete, the growth and development ceases. And now we need to look somewhere else again. Cool and popular doesn't equal good. Yet, and, and I'm not going to say it is human nature, but it does seem normal. We prefer what is trending. Trends are exciting because they aren't what is. And they offer the possibility of different. They offer that hope that exists in the future with unknown data. The new and the cool has that elusive maybe it's like the start of a vacation. You're on your way and you have this ideal potential all in front of you. Our culture is full of products and items and slogans and ideas that quickly emerge to satisfy the desires and pleasures of various circumstances and then fade just as quickly. The glamour of the transplant wilts without connection to the soil. I wonder too, if this is why our culture adores whatever is young and hip and fresh. Sometimes it appears that we treat these things like as the climax of existence. It will solve all of our problems. It offers what nothing has. It's the next new thing. Unknown, elusive future. Present satisfaction of external motivations and avoiding the past. We just tend to like that stuff. We're captivated by it. It promises to move us from what is to what isn't. I also just think it's easier. It's easier to have a garden by buying a bunch of transplants that the department store has on sale as opposed to nurturing a seed to a tree. It's reactively romantic. And we're just left with an exponentially growing graveyard of good ideas, irrelevant startups, and obsolete pet rocks. So what's the alternative here? 
What do we do instead? How do we avoid this danger of progress? Well, I think it deals with the remainder of the content I hinted at. Fabian, memory, and two views of time. Let's start with the two sociological views of time, which is really just a way to substantiate a lot of what we've talked about over the last few episodes, but also contradicts the reactive romanticism of change and the dangers of progress with fads and all of that. There are, generally, two ways to describe one's philosophical or cultural disposition toward time. The first is a diminishing view of time. Best example of this would be a new car. The car has its best or peak value at its start, and then it depreciates over time. A diminishing view of time sees value as descending as time increases. The question here isn't whether or not time correlates with value, as like a law of physics. This is about perception. Entropy and the laws of thermodynamics show that matter does change into a less usable form over time, but that's not the focus here. Because what about things that are not matter? Ideas, for example. How do those relate to their value over time? The, the real question is whether or not we interact with the world in this way generally, from items, but also to ideas and even to people. At least in most Western cultures, this diminishing view of time is usually the default. Things get old. They go out of style. Age equates with boringness or irrelevancy or uselessness. This perspective says that the longer something exists, the less valuable it is. Now, certainly, this does happen with certain things. Entropy, right? But it's not everything. And even with certain forms of matter, the integrity of the physical object does not equate with all of that thing's value. An old, illegible book can still have some kind of value. But when age is seen as a decline, how does that shape our posture toward the world? Well, one effect is that we now have to figure out what to do with things that are old. Where do we put these outdated clothes or objects? What do we replace these former trends and fashions and processes with? And we even do this with people, casting aside anything old. Essentially, a diminishing view of time runs parallel with reactive romanticism. Because this is old, we have to reach for the undetermined new to give us value that the old apparently cannot. And this is not to say that anything old is good in and of itself. But again, utilizing what comes with time might be better than utilizing what does not yet exist. So, that's a diminishing view of time. On the other side, however, is what is called a progressive view of time. Because consider the paradox of a diminishing view. If you happened upon a piece of land that you've never explored, who would you consider a more valuable guide for that land? Someone who just arrived? Or someone who has lived there for decades? Or consider compost. That is physical matter, right? Physical stuff. The material value actually increases with time, or whiskey, or wine, or a relationship. We are surrounded 
by examples where the height of something's value is not actually at the beginning. In fact, fresh wine or a newly planted seed would be best described as immature, inchoate. The value of ideas and experience and memory and even people and processes is usually found in their duration, which doesn't mean that you have to replicate that thing. Remember, there are dangers to static tradition too. Even gleaning from previous failures is a valuable thing though, and that comes from time and should be considered. Often, being attached to what came before you over time leads to a sustaining and accumulated wisdom that you don't get with newness. It is how change can be constructive. A a progressive view of time acknowledges this, that that value appreciates over time instead of depreciating. I, I love the idea of a village elder, this person who has seen it all and whose presence over time leads to value, especially in the mistakes that have been made, the history that has been endured, and the skills and wisdom that enrich through the ebbs and flow of life experience. We don't really have village elders in the United States anymore, which means we don't have this voice that can speak from what is known. We flock to leaders who have this pristine potential like a new car or a new object or a new idea, but we aren't honest about what they lack. The the village elder is known data. You know the limitations, the failures, the messiness, but it is also known data which is much easier to work with. There's this quote from a book called White Man's Grave that has always captured this for me. Words were unnecessary, yet let young mortals use words. This elder only needed to lift his stately head, black and weathered as a crag of obsidian. He said, I have survived seven decades of witchcraft, politics, floods, drought, military cues, famine, tribal wars, failed crops, court cases, fines, dysentery, squabbling with relatives, riots, taxes, tainted water, corrupt chiefs, poverty, thieves, secret societies, yellow fever, government men, white mining speculators, intestinal parasites, the British, snake bites, chronic malaria, and bush devils. What have you done? This is a good example of a progressive view of time versus a diminishing view of time. Here's the deal. While the elusive hope of the future feels good in the momentary present, being honest about the past offers a value that no new thing can. A new human being is this unblemished, pure possibility of goodness. An old human being is full of faults and failures. One is known and one is unknown. What I'm saying is that we should be honest about the unknown. We need to take the known, even with its messiness, and see that it offers a value that is much more practical and has actual possibility of constructive opportunity than the esoteric unknown of greener grass. Work with the grass you have, because in my opinion, there is much more value that we can use there. There's actual data based on reality, not just the abstract hope of the unprovable future. A progressive view of time utilizes the same premise. Experience creates character that transcends the temporary and attaches to a story much larger than itself. That experience is irreplaceable. 
even in decay and aging and loss and, and the erosion of materiality, what has been endured allows access to something that far outweighs what we can see otherwise, especially because our perspective, it's limited to our finite lifespans. A culminating approach to life in the world, a, a view of time that continues what is currently possessed, allows us to see the world of what has been for the sake of yet what has yet to be. And you aren't just going to throw that away for the sake of something excitably new. So how do you keep the fads at bay? A progressive view of time. Because in this, the new is not preferred and the old is not abandoned. And of course, we cannot go through an episode without pointing to the very obvious component of why this village elder view of time ought to be the case. The reason why experience is irreplaceable is because it is all you have. Enter phenomenology. We can only know and see the world based on what we know and see. We can only function by the information we have, and that is constrained to what we have actually experienced. Therefore, better to utilize as much seeing and knowing as possible. And if we can find our perspective to what is singularly and momentarily in front of us, we are ignoring a wealth of perspective being offered by previous travelers. A diminishing view of time only looks at the world through what our eyes are immediately conscious of, which is vastly limited. A progressive view of time tries to see as much of the scope as possible. New iterations of the story will happen, but it is embraced through the fullness of time, not in lieu of it. What has been is not useless. It doesn't depreciate in value like a new car. It is unavoidable, but it is also necessary, and contrary to our culture's normal disposition, it is actually quite useful. Even when things of the past are wrong or destructive or inchoate or off, the accumulation of time preserves a certain worth that our limited phenomenological perspective ought to utilize. That's good information. We should continue the story of the world by using the whole story of which we are a part. The old doesn't hold us back. It propels us forward. All right. There's the full scope of our issue at hand, the danger of progress. You've got reactive romanticism and a diminishing view of time. Between the propensity to drift toward the unknown future and get that, you know, immediate satisfaction and, and detach from the value that has accumulated through experience over time, we can actually jump into a worse version of reality. So what's the alternative? H how do we mitigate these potential miscues? I think two dispositions are helpful that counter reactive romanticism and a diminishing view of time, and they're memory and longevity. Working within the smallness of where you are and playing the long game. So, let's start with the long game. During the Second Punic War with Carthage, Rome almost saw its end at the hands of a guy named Hannibal. He's one of the greatest generals to ever live. Every battle was going to be a loss to such a brilliant strategist. Rome was also known for its pride. They were the greatest empire in the world. The standard approach, therefore, was to rise up and just defeat Hannibal. It didn't work. 
and with every defeat, Rome became weaker and Carthage became stronger. A leader named Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus, who we will refer to now as Fabius, offered a solution. Hannibal had two issues. He was the invader, and he was quite a ways from home. The best thing Hannibal could do was get some of the tribes around Rome to join him and and use either those tribes or conquered areas to supply his army. Victories would win those tribes over, and therefore he's going to help keep restocking his supplies and troops. Fabius' suggestion to the Senate was to cut him off. Don't let him win any battles by not fighting any battles. This would keep Hannibal from gaining momentum and getting the tribes to join him, and it kept Rome from losing troops. The best way to avoid losing battles against Hannibal and letting him continue to gain momentum was just to not fight any battles. Essentially, time was Hannibal's weakness. Rome had a large walled city that would be incredibly difficult to siege. So at the prompting of Fabius, they just sat back. They do some small raids, but they just watched as Hannibal grew weaker. They technically lost a lot of battles, but through the Fabian strategy, they won the war. Fabius played the long game, and this has become known in the military world as the Fabian strategy. And I think this actually translates well to our sociological situation. Not necessarily because there's a something to win here, but because the propensity to take slow and small steps is a more effective means of change and progress than the immediacy we so often prefer and just jump into. Instead of running to greener grass, the Fabian approach simply works with the grass that you actually have and accepts that this isn't going to happen all at once. It's the whole, how do you eat an elephant, one bite at a time thing. Instead of jumping to answers and seeking the monumental shift, we take what we have, the reality of what is, and we walk slowly. We play the long game. We allow this to become even if it feels like a loss at times. Really, this is just a posture of acceptance. Within our limited, finite, mortal experience, there's a non-anxious presence. Partly because there are no ulterior motives now. There's no perception we have to meet the demands of. The ongoing process isn't a means to some other end. We're just doing what we need to do with what we realistically have. And we keep on going. For Fabian, he was actually criticized because of the pride of the Roman Senate. But while counterintuitive, there was a necessary element in simply being patient and simply realizing that some of these things are out of our control, so what are the practical things we can control? There were no expectations for Fabian. There was no glamour that he was trying to get. He's just winning by apparently losing. And that's what I mean by longevity. Doing something for what it will eventually become, even though it takes time. It's the sociological equivalent of good barbecue. Can you microwave a rack of ribs? with a little liquid smoke, and then lather them with store-bought sauce? I guess. I'm just not sure why you would. Because the outcome resulting from endurance and patience is way more effective. You lose immediacy, but you gain sustainability and depth. Longevity is the opposite of the fad. Longevity builds and continues. 
Fads chase short-term satisfaction at quite a cost because the momentary present simply evaporates. Slow and steady wins the race, right? I feel like some Thomas the Train episode should be referenced here. Because while while short-sighted myopia can dazzle us with unknown possibilities and immediate satisfaction, the long game of sustained continuation always wins out. Those are the things that endure, even if they don't jump to immediate stardom. While fads and trends, you know, they're the next cool startup, those come and go. Jumping to fame or influence or recognition, and then they just as quickly grasp at the straws of their own obscurity. Meanwhile, the long game keeps on chugging. The second process here is memory. There is an agrarian perspective that elevates this standard, uh, and, and that group sometimes called the distributist. Essentially, they emphasize the danger of disregarding the past. They confront this cultural norm of only looking forward with no concern of what came before and how we got to this place. And the basis for the distributist was this. One, humans are limited. Two, responsibility can only be enacted within those limits of where you are. Three, to carry out this responsibility, one must remain in that place with long-term intentionality. And four, this kind of presence necessitates belonging. This should all sound quite familiar if you've been following along, but this perspective has quite a few sociological ramifications, especially when it comes to community and politics or economics, distributists and, and, and agrarians usually are against things like absentee economies. They, they are usually politically libertarian or communitarian, and they are tied to their geographical area. The essential process here is that belonging requires proximity. In order to love something, you must care about it. In order to care about it, you must know it. In order to know it, you must see it. You got to be there consistently over time. This is what we talked about in the community episodes that we called the shared history. Shared history requires a particular view of time, and it requires one notable ingredient, memory. A lot of people just say, oh, agrarians are traditionalist, and, but it isn't that simple. They emphasize the importance of the long game, but also of memory because that actually promotes healthy, constructive growth and change. Consider, for example, a relationship. If we were to put this in the perspective of a marriage, a marriage requires fidelity over time. There is a commitment to both the long game and memory. And through this time, the marriage actually improves. I mean, if done correctly. It's this infinite mingling of souls where you gain appreciation, understanding, and a certain depth to the movement of interaction and knowledge between the two persons. Sure, culture seems to be trending in the direction of claiming you know, marriage is just an antiquated and old school and an unnecessary institution that holds the liberated individual back. But there's a chance that there is something to gain through this kind of perspective as well that might make sense of why it's actually a thing. Shared history enhances the commitment and, in my opinion, the joy and pleasure of the relationship. Each moment builds on what has been shared over time. 
memory improves possibility. Or on the other side of this, think about how device programming works. Device adaptation is why a smartphone can suggest certain words while texting that you typically use or why it recommends certain things to you. It is software that utilizes the past over time to make the experience more effective. In this case, this is why I wouldn't say that the agrarians are just pure traditionalists. Memory is the means by which we progress because it functions to continue existence through the depth of holistic existence. This is why it's called a progressive view of time. It uses the whole thing, and that includes the possibilities of the future. The long game and memory go hand in hand. It's the process of how roots bring growth. It's not just changing for the sake of change, but adapting and continuing the exploration as necessary. It pays attention to what is in process and grounds that innovation in the totality of what's available. The emphasis here is that unavoidable change needs to intentionally use the wholeness of time if it is going to be constructive, useful, meaningful, or sustainable. That's essentially what I've been trying to say over the last six episodes. I think, as a society, we have to make decisions about how we're going to move through the world, because we are going to move. And I just don't see a whole lot of healthy responses to change, or generally just to this dance between tradition and progress. So, we're going to leave that there. That's going to conclude our explanation of roots and growth. Though, though There is still that stuff by Emile Durkheim about the structure of society and how society is built to change and resist change all at the same time, uh, which is what most of this whole series is actually based on, if you're interested. But there's no more time for that. Maybe another day. I hope you've enjoyed this content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.